once you've got the excitement thing down, you come to you just meet people in their place of interest. Hey, my name is Felix Tian. I'm the host of Shopify Masters, a weekly podcast powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. Each week, we invite entrepreneurs like you to share what they've learned growing successful e-commerce businesses. In this episode, you'll learn how to find and get the best product reviewers to work with you, why you should think about layout last when designing your site, and how they use live chat groups like Discord to do market research and create happy customers. Today, I'm joined by Joe Lieberman from Antlion Audio. Antlion Audio manufactures the world's leading attachment mic, turning any pair of headphones into a gaming headset and was started in 2012 and based out of Portland, Oregon. Welcome, Joe. Hey, Felix. Thanks for having me. Yes, I appreciate you coming on. So one thing that you mentioned to us in the in this pre-interview was around the idea of meeting your customers where they are rather than forcing them into a funnel that gives you the greatest margin. And this really stood out to me. I think that's a really important point. Can you elaborate a little bit more on this? Like, What does it mean to meet your customers where they are? Sure. So when somebody wants to get a mod mic, right, we want to make that frictionless. I mean, ideally frictionless. That's impossible, but we got to come as close as we can to being frictionless. And one of the big hurdles for international customers, if you don't have uh, a global logistics system, is they order from your U.S. warehouse, and they have to deal with international shipping, they have to deal with customs. And if we can handle all that on our end by either having warehouses around the world or having distributors in their country, then that step is removed. They can go directly to their local distributor, their local retailer, and say, I'd like to buy a mod mic, and it's there you know, in two to three days, as opposed to a couple weeks or sometimes even more than a month uh, due to customs snagging their package and adding on extra fees and that kind of thing. Got it. So before we, we, we start going down this route of talking about this kind of distribution where you have warehouses around the world, let's rewind to the very beginning. Where, where was the very first, uh, I guess, distribution point? Where did you guys start this business? <laughs> so, <laughs> the, sorry, I have to laugh because the, the story of how it started is so... Um, We'll use the word strange, uh, that it's almost unbelievable. So Jim Console, who's the inventor and founder of the mod mic, which, by the way, works not just for gaming, but for businesses. So if you're going to be doing a, a company that involves making calls, you really do want to put your best foot forward, and your best foot is your voice in this case. So a good mic, whether it's ours or someone else's, is a great investment as you're starting out. And you're but on anyway, one right now, right? I, yeah, I am currently using the Mod Mic 5. You're listening to it live. Um, so as I was saying, uh, as it started, was Jim, he, uh, he had a pair of Bose QC25 noise-canceling headphones and was just annoyed at the fact that he had to put his nice headphones down and pick up a crappy headset in order to play some games with some friends. And so he came up with the idea of, what if I just created an a high quality mic that you can attach to my Bose headphones. And so it started as a Reddit post. Would anybody else be interested in this thing? And he got so many replies, he started making them by hand, like pouring plastics and stuff in a spare bedroom in an apartment. Uh, And then he met our now CEO, Ellie, and uh, they worked together, still making them by hand for two years (laughs) hand-producing microphones. Uh, finally, we, of course, uh, reached a point where we needed mass distribution and more staff, and you know things took off from there. But that's the, uh, that's the beginning. And w- where did you enter into the story? When, when did you, I guess, get involved? I only came along in uh, 2016. So in 2014, we went to mass production. Uh, they went two years without really having any marketing staff. I'm the director of marketing. And... So, yeah, uh, between 2014 and 2016, they grew the company sort of ad hoc as, you know, without a lot of direction. And in 2016, I and several other people came on board in, in, a, in an attempt to sort of globalize the company. 
Got it. Yeah, this is not the first time where I heard someone got their start on, on Reddit, but then, like you mentioned, I mean, two years of, of hand making, making this uh, before they decided to kind of scale this out a little bit more. Do you, do you know the story of how that began? Like, what, what kind of steps did they take to make this a little bit more scalable, more manageable, rather than just making it uh, by hand? James, uh, Jimmy, James Consul. Uh, James is a perfectionist when it comes to engineering. And so those two years, I think the most important thing they did wasn't selling the units they made by hand, uh, which was clearly unsustainable in the long term, but using it as sort of a test bed to try different designs, to try different attachment methods, to uh, try different microphones, uh, both the capsule and the, the way it was constructed. So by 2014, when they were ready to go to mass production for the Mod Mic 4, the process was was basically nailed down, right? So we finally had, I guess, what I would call the winning product, right? And before that, I think it would have been too soon to go to scale, right? So uh, these sort of this two-year period, you could almost consider entirely R&D, sort of funded by fanatic fans. Got it. So what kind of marketing were they doing at that point? Once the, in, in 2014, they figured out what the Mod Mic 4, this fourth kind of iteration of the product, they figured out what was going to work. What kind of marketing did they do before you came on board? I think, you know, I wasn't there. So it's, it's a, <laughs> and there's no, there's no written record of it uh, because they weren't very good, which is a really important marketing task is to keep tabs on what you've done in the past and make a you know make a nice spreadsheet with all the info for all the people you've talked to all the the clippings or, or articles or videos so you have them all in one place and you can easily reference them and reach out to those people in the future um, so one that's a great lesson and they did not do that so there isn't a great written record of of all the things that were done but I have one of the first things I did when I came on board is try to figure out what has been done uh, from what I can tell, a lot of the success both came from Reddit as their beginning place and also from uh, YouTube tech reviewers. So, Got it. And once you came on board, what were some things that you knew you wanted to implement right away? The first thing we wanted to implement was improving the website. Uh, the original site was a, a fairly simple Shopify template. So the first thing we did was overhaul that to what you currently see which is a much more professional-looking website. And we did that not to increase conversion rate. In fact, uh, I don't think it made any impact on conversion rate at all, but to present ourselves as a, a, true, um, a true company as opposed to a Shopify reseller, right? There's a, I wouldn't say there's a stigma against that, but there is, you want to present yourself as more than just a shop template. Right, you want to build a brand. Yeah, I think what you're getting at is that you want to represent yourself as a brand that exists beyond just a, a website. Well, what are some elements that you made sure to include, or that you recommend others make sure to include on their site to to give off that kind of uh, that messaging? Well, I think that is as much art as it is science. First, so I think there's a lot of different ways you can tackle that problem of sort of presenting a professional image. I would say templates tend to look like templates. And so that is a thing you want to get away from immediately. Um, that said, templates, good templates, they, they work, right? They're designed specifically to achieve something. So first you have to understand what it is you want to achieve. Are you pushing somebody to sign up for a newsletter so you can send them information in the future? Are you pushing somebody to make a purchase? Are you pushing somebody to learn about your product? These things are not all mutually exclusive, but they are they are fighting each other, right? There's only so much time and energy that somebody's going to put into looking at your website and you need to get yourself in a position to capitalize on what you want to do. So first is to define what that goal is of the site. And then I'm a big fan of consistent visual theme. So you want to present a consistent story visually from where you want them to start to where you want them to finish. Can you say more about this? What 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 is your what is your story? Like, what do you want them to begin, and where do you want them to finish? So, in our site, what we what we want them to do is to go to um, the product page to learn more about it, 
and that's that's sort of our end goal, right? Is to is to eventually get them to reach the product page. Um, along the way, we want them to learn about the benefits of a good microphone. So the original design had them flow through a sort of a learning page, the front page, then a learning page, then the product page, and we still sort of keep that theme today with a after several re- revisions. Uh, so, for instance, you go to shop mod mic, and you end up either at gaming or business, which tells you about a different story for each of those two customers. So, gaming, of course, we're we're focused on, uh, you know, competitiveness. We're focused on, uh, you know, the the quality and the respect you get from other players and that kind of thing. You know, nobody wants to play a game with uh, somebody who's got a bad mic. <laughs> it's it's very annoying, but also. For like people who are interested into streaming and podcasting, um, the having a good mic is really essential. So talking to those people, whereas of course business, we care more about Skype calls and that kind of thing. It's still the same problem, your same same thing. We don't want to make a business call and have a bunch of background noise and have a bunch of interference. So we tell that story both visually and through text as you go from front page to shop page to product page, and then ideally they they buy the thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're. You mentioned this briefly, and you, I think you're talking about this now too. Where the the goal of the site that you had redesigned wasn't even so necessarily concerned with them making a purchase on the website. What you cared more about was getting them to learn about the product. What? What? Why? Why? I guess why this approach? For us, this approach is because our product is not simple. There are products in the world that are self-explanatory. I think actually I was just listening to your last podcast about the guy that makes wallets, right? Uh, Wallets are self-explanatory. Everybody knows what one is. Uh, A headphone, a pair of of headphones, those are self-explanatory. Everybody knows what it is. A microphone that attaches to any headphone requires an additional statement. Because if I just say that, the 99% of the time somebody says, why do you need that? And I have to go, because great headphones the really good ones, which are not that expensive, don't come with microphones. Mm-hmm. And they go, oh. <laughs> and that's a, So we need that step to tell that story. Uh, and other products may, may not need that. I don't know. But ours certainly does. So that's, that's why it's important. Uh, so, the information thing is important to us. And don't get me wrong. We do want to sell things from our website. We do make more money when we sell things from our website. That's nice. Um, but to us, that is a nice to have. Got it. So once they are complete the story on your site, what's typically the rest of the journey? Like if they were not to purchase from your site directly, where do they end up? Where do they see you again? And where might they purchase again? We're sort of all over the place. I mean, most of our sales do happen on Amazon. So that's the biggest uh, by far. But we're even, you know, we're we're in retail shops in the U.S. uh, like Micro Center. Uh, We're internationally in a variety of retail shops everywhere from the United Kingdom to Japan. So they might encounter the product all over the place. Um, of course, we're also very active on social media. Uh, so it's very likely they'll see something either by us or by an influencer who's using our product or promoting our product. So, you know, they encounter it in the wild pretty frequently. If they are, if you are into gaming and you are watching streams, you will probably come across somebody reviewing or covering one of our products you know, the same year you you first learn about it for sure. Mm-hmm. Do you is there any way to track, or do you know uh, either anecdotally uh, if a lot of your traffic comes to your site, learns about you, and then leaves to buy on Amazon, or are they just uh, sometime later searching around for microphones or headsets, and they come across yours and remembers the experience they had on your site? As far as I know, there is no way to do that. Um, not directly. Uh, so you cannot, Amazon is, is a black box, as it were. You cannot, as far as I know, have somebody follow them out of your site and then pick up a conversion tracked metric when they check out at Amazon. We can track, however, the fluctuation in traffic to our site, uh, like organic traffic to our site, and sales on Amazon. And there is a correlation there, right? So as people learn about our products more, sales on Amazon go up. Not a shock. Uh, I know, but that's <laughs> that is the reality. Mm-hmm. Right. So in that way, we can indirectly see that yes, people are learning about the product and making a purchase. It, it does make it a challenge for us to metrically say, 
yes, this visitor is worth this much. <laughs> right. So how do you when you were when you came on board and you recognized the need to redesign the site? Talk to us about this process. Like, how did you approach redesigning an existing site? How did we do it? It seems like it's it feels like a trauma, actually. You know, like you you don't really remember what happened. <laughs> you know it happened, but uh, it was not easy, right? Redesigning a site from the the bottom up is uh, it is an undertaking for a, an established site with a lot of pages. Uh, you know, the first thing we had to do was determine what that what that flow was going to be, as I mentioned. And the next thing would be the, the visuals of um, of color, right? So, what colors are we going to want to use? Um, and I think the last thing is about layout, right? So I think, I guess if I had to say the mistake people make is they focus a lot on layout first, but that's like the least important thing because it's easy to change a layout and it's very difficult to change like the brand color once you establish it. Got it. So you mentioned three things. There's a flow, visuals, and layout. How, how is flow and layout, I guess, different or, or related? So flow is the first thing I was talking about where you're, what, what is the goal, right? What's the flow of the user going to be? That's the first thing you need to know, right? And the second thing you know is, need to know is what, what are the colors and what are the styles that our brand is going to, is going to use, right? A, a tech company for gamers is going to be wildly different than, say, a food company for, uh, for uh, like young adults, right? They're just going to look visually very different, probably. And is this a subjective kind of um, Oh, yeah, it's totally subjective. Uh, this is why I said it's, it's, it's as much art as it is any science in my, my mind, mm-hmm. right? You need a vision for uh, what... Uh, boy, what's the word I'm looking for? What brand identity you want to mm-hmm. create, and it, it really, Antlion in, in 2016, as I came on board, didn't really have one, right? It was just microphones <laughs> on a page, really. Right. I think having that brand can allow you to do things like get way more dedicated customers and also perceived value goes up, right? You can potentially charge more for a product if you have some kind of identity around it. So was this all done in-house? Like when you guys did this whole, it's not even just a redesign of the website, you guys kind of redesigned the brand or gave it a brand identity uh, is probably the better way to say it. Uh, was this all done in-house? Is there ways to to hire help with this if if you're not someone that is, uh, you know, I guess, well-versed in this area? Yeah, it's that classic trade-off of time and money, right? There's, we definitely did not do all this in-house. Um, we, we definitely managed a lot of people who helped create this. So we did a photo shoot, right? And we did not shoot the images ourselves. We had a professional photographer shoot them. Uh, you know, we hired actors um, to, to play the roles uh, and so on and so on. I, we, you know, and the design... We did. We hired uh, a company, Monumental, is their their name, out of Portland, and so we worked with them to create the website. Um, but when it came to the decisions about flow and about color and about um, how we wanted to create it, that was internal, right? So internally, we knew what we wanted from the photo shoot. We knew what we wanted from uh, the colors and the style and the flow of the site. And then we went to these places and said, this is what we need. Build it for us. Um, I think it is a trap to allow somebody who does not know and love your product to dictate what your website should be. I think this is an important point, and I think there's two questions here. One is, do you have an example of something that you see store owners, brand owners, entrepreneurs doing that's interfering too much with the help that they've hired? And I'll start there and I'll ask the second question after. So, yeah, like when you don't let somebody do their job. Uh, <laughs> I've seen that before. Um, you know, it's it's always a trap, right? Because you don't want to, you don't want to override the opinion of an expert if you are not an expert, right? So on the one hand, you need to recognize where your expertise ends and theirs begins and defer to the person who you've hired. Uh, so if, 
if you, you say I want my my brand colors to be uh, I don't know like pink and green <laughs> something terrible together right that's probably that's probably like the new color that everybody loves but what do I know this is a this is a good point this is where my expertise ends <laughs> um, but yeah and the guy goes that those are not going to work well together then you know you should take a moment and listen and say all right why not and you know if you don't believe it then you need to do the research and and discover who's right and who's wrong at the end of the day you get are the client so you get to decide um but generally speaking if i hire somebody for instance to create a brand color palette then i'm going to listen to what they say Right. So what's an example on the other side where it's something that you see, again, others, uh, other uh, entrepreneurs doing where they're outsourcing the decision making where they should not be doing that? That comes down to, well, I mean, it's, it's going to vary entirely based on what your expertise is. But basically, if you are the expert, don't outsource the work unless you are so distracted with other things going on that you have no choice but to do so. Um, this is especially true about, I think, things that are related to your product and your product understanding. So if the task at hand requires an intimate knowledge of the product, you can't outsource it, at least not quickly. I think, for instance, this is why it is so hard to get a good public public relations person. Uh, you know, a lot of my time as marketing director spent doing PR work you know, getting reviews and getting people to talk about our products. It is very hard for an outside agency to come in and be experts about your product, talk about it with the passion and the understanding that's required to get somebody else excited about it. Mm. Let's talk about this then. So you mentioned that a big part of your your job is to get the community that, that you're selling into to get excited to talking about it. How did you approach this? Like when you first came on board and that was one of the mandates that you either gave yourself or the company required. How do you begin to build this kind of momentum inside a community so people want to review or talk about your product? I think the first thing I did was be excited about the mod mic because, and I, I keep using this, you just got to love your product. All right, that it, there's a certain amount of enthusiasm that will come through in everything you do if you really are excited about what you're doing. And if you're not, you should really question why you're doing what you're doing. Can you, can you unpause here? Can, can you get excited if you're not excited? Or is it something that you show up on day one if you're joining a company or, or if you're starting a business and you're not excited? Can you get yourself there? Or if it's like, if you're not there from the beginning, you got to get out? I can only speak for me, but I think I have to be excited at, at the very start. Mm-hmm. If I come in with a sense of skepticism with a company or with a product, uh, I owned a PR company for 14 years before I joined Antline. So, you know, sometimes people would pitch products to me and it wouldn't excite me. And every time I accepted those clients, it didn't go well. Like, so this is, what, this is where I'm coming from. So assuming you are excited about your product, um, you gotta, you gotta enter in with that, that passion. And the mod mic story is I was looking for this product and I couldn't find it. Um, but my pair of headphones broke and I was looking for a new headset and I was like, man, why can't I just get nice headphones and a good mic that attaches to it? I don't want one of those big desktop mics, right? I, I had a small desk at the time. So I was like, man, I wish somebody made that product. And then three months later, I was at a job interview for this this company. And I'm like, where were you? <laughs> uh, so that's how I knew that both I was interested in the product and that other people would be also. If I'm looking for it, certainly other people have to be. And clearly, they need marketing help since I wasn't able to find this product. So anyway, that, that's my that's my anecdotal story. But yeah, um, yeah, the original question. Sorry, I, I distracted you. So the original question was, how do you begin to build out this community or support this community so that they want to do things like product reviews or want to spread the word of mouth about your products? Once you've got the excitement thing down, you come to you just meet people in their place of interest. You know, we talked earlier about meeting people where they are. This is, I think, also a figurative thing, right? We can meet people 
where they're going to be interested in our product. So it's an individual thing. I think a lot of people make a mistake in audience building that they they care a lot about reaching volume, but there's a lot of value to be had in reaching the quality of an individual contact. Ideally, an individual contact who has a lot of reach, right? So in the tech world, for instance, Linus Tech Tips, one of the largest um, tech reviewers in the world, uh, really, really likes the ModMic product. Uh, he did before I came on board, right? But establishing a rapport with those types of people, the influencers of others, and doing so at a very high level of, of contact and you know relationship building, that is essential, right? Uh, doing so for an individual who's a customer is also essential. Uh, it's just harder to, to dedicate a lot of time to it. But I would take that over plastering an ad that'll reach you know 10,000 people uh, very passively. I would take one great interaction with a person over that. Especially someone with an audience, like you said, that has their own kind of reach. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but even, even uh, certainly with an audience, but even just a regular individual who might be a customer, I would take... I would take one good interaction with them over 10,000 ad views any day. And good meaning someone that is already super excited about the product or that could be super just excited curious about, it? about the Yeah, just curious about the product is all I need to talk to them. Guys, okay, so there's two types of contacts. I'll start with the first one, which is the one, basically the influencer. So how do you guys identify influencers that you want to work with that maybe have not heard of the mod mic before? A lot of Googling. Uh, you know, we, we go, I go after people who look at similar products, so might be looking at headphones, headsets, or people who are in our sort of goal demographic. So, uh, for instance, in the gaming world, live streamers and that kind of thing, uh, people who are streaming um, game content or doing YouTubes about games. Um, so, one, just finding those people. Uh, or in, on the business side, for instance, people, I don't know, doing a Shopify podcast, for instance. <laughs> Finding those people and reaching them uh, with a message that is specifically crafted for their audience. What is it about your product that will appeal to their audience and that will be interesting to their audience? Because nobody wants to shill somebody else's product, right? Not without good cause. So you need to you need to craft a message that's going to convince them that working with you is not only interesting for their audience, but also in their best interest and easy. You know, you got to make it as easy as possible for them. Got it. So how does that engagement usually begin? Let's say you find a, uh, a, a YouTuber or a streamer that's talking about uh, video games. How do you approach things? I'm assuming they're getting pitched a lot too, right? From, from maybe different products or maybe competitors to yours or other people selling headsets. Oh yeah, they get they are constantly inundated by pitches from people. So first of all, grow a thick skin before you start this because you're going to get a lot of rejection. <laughs> it's gonna uh, don't take it personally. That's uh, the important thing. Uh, I send out maybe let's as, as an example, I'll send out a hundred emails. That's the first thing I do. Usually, just email somebody, cold email, introduce myself, introduce the product. Um, I might send out a hundred. I'll get. 15 replies, 20 replies. That's good. That's a good number for me. Oh, what do you say in those emails? How do you begin to even get them to reply? 50% reply rate, I'm, it's pretty, I think it's, it's good. Right? So how, how do you get them to respond? Uh, be personable. Uh, be individual. So if you can, uh, craft a message about them, about their channel, their whatever they're, they're doing that, is, that has caught your attention. Uh, you know, send them a real message. Don't just copy and paste something to them. Um, yes, you should probably copy and paste the stuff about your product because that's not going to change. But when it comes to saying why you want to work with them, you know, be take that extra step and be personable with them. Be human. I think that's the biggest thing. Got it. And do you? What about length? Does that matter? Do you want to be quick and give them something short? How much detail should you go into? Why you want to work with them? About your uh, what? Why your product? Yeah, I guess length matters. I've gotten to this point where I don't really think about it. Um, you certainly don't want to write them a book, and you don't want to give them too little information. So there's definitely a happy medium in there. I, I don't know what, um, I don't like have a word count specifically, 
less than a page probably is is about right. Got it. So they respond back and say, "Yes, I'm interested." What's usually the next step? Uh, well, the first step would have been to figure out what you're offering them. So, the in that first email, you need to be clear with what is being offered and what is being expected of them, right? So, don't be vague. Nobody wants to like they they don't have time to have a long conversation about like what it is you want from them. I want you to review the mod mic on your channel as either a dedicated video or as part of some other style feature that you, you can do, right? That's what I want from you. That's what I'll say. And you're hitting them with this in that first email, right? You're not doing this thing where you're like, hey, if you're interested, email me back for more details. You're not doing that. You're like giving them all the details up front. But you must, the trick is you must give them a reason to reply. So I will always say, if you are interested, please send me your shipping address. Mm. I like right. that. And now they, they have a reason to reply. It is an action item for them. I will reply with my shipping address. And a lot of emails I get is literally just a shipping address. Name, shipping address. Bam. I like that because it's also a reward for, it, it, it leads to a reward essentially for them if they reply. Because a lot of times it's like reply to get more details. I'm like, man, I don't want to reply and get more things to read. If I reply and send them my shipping address, I get the product. You know, I think that that is important where you're incentivizing me or incentivizing person that you're reaching out to to reply and not to reply and then get more work. Right. And that's that's exactly it, right? And also gives you an opportunity to reply back. They send the shipping address and that's when you can reply with something else, right? Hey, I've sent it off. Uh, and you tell a little story, whatever it is to begin building that relationship. Um, you know, tell a story, ask a question, maybe both. Uh, you know, put in a few items, extra items about the product that, you know, maybe got glossed over or you want to really focus in on. Right. Makes sense. Okay. So once you are able to, to get, to get that far, what, what do you usually expect? Like what's an example of a, a, an ideal product review? They love the product and tell everybody to go buy it immediately. <laughs> <laughs> That's the ideal. Is there like um, certain things that you want them talking about usually? Like I, get, I think a lot of times when people are thinking, okay, I want to go the route of getting reviews for my product and they either go one way where they the car kind of uh, give all the free reign essentially to to the, the reviewer and don't kind of guide, give any guidance or direction or the other way where they really want to control the entire messaging and maybe give them a script even or certain things to hit on. Like where do you kind of fall in that okay, spectrum? Uh, I would definitely advise not trying to dictate to a reviewer what they should say about your product. Uh, not only is it rude, I think it turns them off your person, right? Like it turns them off your brand. They don't want to have somebody tell them how to do their job. Nobody wants that. So that said, you can, of course, nudge them in the direction you want them to go. So for instance, in that follow-up email, one of the things I mentioned is after they send their address, you reply back and you include some key points about the product. Uh, for instance, you know, our product is vegan. <laughs> Don't forget. <laughs> you know, hey, we really want you to compare our microphone to other microphones. You know, you, you lead them in that way. Like, you know, you should, you know, definitely try this. And as a result, a lot of our reviews are comparing our mic to other mics, which we compare very favorably. So that's a, that's a way you can, but you don't want to say, you know, hey, I'd like you to review our product by comparing it to other microphones uh, and then talk about how it attaches and then talk about the mute module. Uh, those are things, yeah, you just don't, don't want to be too... Uh, too direct, I guess. You want to just sort of nudge them in that direction. They get look at the message. Right. So you give them kind of a menu of things to pick from or just some information essentially that gets them thinking about how to craft the, the review. And so how do you usually work with these like reviewers? Are they, do you usually work with like paid reviewers? Do they get like commission? Like what's usually turns out to be that the best uh, approach if someone wants to go down the route of product reviews? Oh man. Now you, now you've done it. <laughs> I come from a journalist family, uh, although just like everybody in my family is a journalist. And I, ironically, as the as a PR person, 
I'm like on the opposite side of journalism, which is weird, but it's still very connected. I draw a very hard line between editorial content and paid content, right? A review is an editorial piece. I'm not going to say I've never paid for one, but I am severely against doing so. Mm. Why is that? The moment a reviewer is paid to review an item, they lose all credibility for not only the item they're currently reviewing, but all future items they review. So you don't even want to work with reviewers that have gotten paid or at least currently are taking paid reviews? I wouldn't say that, but it's not, I don't think it's in their best interest to do it. And it's not in our brand's best interest to be associated with paying people to review products. I will pay people to do advertisements about our products. But to pay somebody to review a product calls into a lot of question their their credibility. So, um, yeah, basically, there's no way somebody's going to get paid a bunch of money and then trash your product, right? And if they can't say negative things about your product, then why would you trust them to be honest about anything they do? Mm, says a lot about them, basically. So you, what's it? What do have you? Do you have taken uh, taken the other approach where it's not editorial, but it's an advertisement? Like what's an example of uh, something like that? Oh yeah, yeah. We uh, we do we run advertisements frequently. Um, on video, we do a lot of pre rolls and, and post rolls and uh, product inclusions, right? So, and those are clearly stated as you know, hey, this video is sponsored by Antlion Mod Mike. Check it out. You know, at the link below. Yada yada yada. It tells them about the product. Um, you know, we'll advertise on Facebook. We'll send people to our blog pages and then, you know, use that post about usually about audio and getting better audio gear to bring them further into learning about our products. Right. Got it. And how do you decide to whether you should work with someone as a as a sponsor for them, where you're paying them for this advertisement, where they are kicking off the video by saying sponsored by Antline Mod Mike versus a review? Like, how do you decide which one to to, to go with? You go with both uh, is the is the answer. Um, you, I like to tell people, reviewers, that hey, I want you to review our product, and after you are done reviewing the product, I would like to talk to you about advertising. Oh, okay. So you kick off maybe the review first, and then if they seem to be excited about the brand, then they're probably going to be a good fit for uh, to be sponsored by you. That's right. You can usually see from the review how much they get the product, right? And how excited their audience is by the product. And that's a really great measuring stick for whether an ad is going to be successful or not. Yeah, you're not the first one that I've heard of this idea of making sure that your reviewers or your sponsored uh, influencers get the product. What does that mean to you? What does it mean for them to get the product? I'm not really sure I have a static definition of that. It comes down to, you know, I keep coming back to this idea of excitement on this call, but are they, do they appear to be actually excited by what this product allows them to do is, is the thing I'm looking for, right? Is it genuine? Are they using the product correctly? Of course, it's very important. Do you know, do they install it correctly? Uh, is the quality good, uh, you know, of the video or of the text? Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's more like, did it click in their head that, oh my God, I can finally use my pair of Sennheisers to make Skype calls and to play Call of Duty. Like, did they have that aha moment, right? And mm-hmm. it usually comes across very clearly for us. And then we, we can see in the comments or in the interactions they have with their, with their audience, did their audience also get it? Got it. So I want to switch topics a little bit about this approach to building this business that is stable. And this is something that again, you mentioned in the in the pre-interview, which is around controlling the capital structure of your of the company, so that you're not forced to go big or go home, and allows you to 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 see kind of the stable growth without a lot of pressure. Can you explain what what this means? And what is the capital structure that you guys have been able to set up so that you're able to 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 uh, approach business in this way? Well, we're a weird company, I guess, in these days because we don't have any debt or any investors. Uh, Jimmy and Ellie in 2012 to 2014 made the bikes by hand, and they just bootstrapped everything from there. So 
they took the money, they invested it into building, you know, doing a, the first mass production run. I think it was 5,000 units. And those sold out very quickly. And then that money was taken to a, do another production run of 10,000 units and so on and so on uh, until, until we are here today, really. Yeah, I think I think um, I think I, I, I spoke about it when I asked a question that you're, you're obviously speaking about the benefits of of being a bootstrap and not take on any debt or have any investors that dictates the direction of the business. What what about opportunities that that potentially could be missed by by not taking on debt or taking on investors? Yeah, you, well, you're missing out on the opportunity to basically leverage debt for faster growth, right? So if if we uh, needed, say, a 50,000-unit production run and we didn't have the capital to do it, we were potentially, you know, if we really believe we can move 50,000 units very quickly, then, you know, we need to be able to do that, right? So you need to take on debt when you need, um, when you can immediately turn that debt into capital, you know, turn it, well, very quickly back into capital, so yeah, I, we we've never we've never had you know we're we're a very steadily growing company and we've never had that explosive growth. Now we may be missing out on the ability to just have explosive growth because we can maybe put out a hundred times more advertisements about the product, uh, or you know maybe missing out on hiring twenty people that can you know, do these various tasks that we, we have to outsource and we, you know, are slower to do, right? So we can produce more stuff, then we might be able to grow quicker. But that comes, you know, with the implicit risk of, for debt, of course, that you won't be able to do what you imagine you, you'll be able to do and the, everybody will suffer in the end. Or for, you know, venture capital of having somebody sort of holding your purse strings and potentially changing the direction of the company. Can you give us an idea of how much the company has grown by just taking this kind of bootstrapping model? Like, what's possible without uh, without having to take on uh, investments and, and and investors? I believe this year I don't have the exact number, but I believe this year we have passed a quarter million mod mics sold. Wow! So that's that's an amazing. You can get milestone. pretty far. Yeah. Now, now, <laughs> now, speaking of getting far, how many countries do you guys have distribution in today? It's definitely over 30 now. We're basically available in every country in the EU, obviously the United States and Canada, uh, Australia, Japan, India, Thailand, I think is now launched. Uh, and I think that I think that covers most of the countries. Uh, we're not yet available in Latin America, Africa, or uh, China or Korea. How do you guys decide where to add new distribution? So we have a we have a list. I, I built a list of basically the size of the gaming market and the overall strength of the economy. And I basically created a uh, my own formula for determining what are the most important places that we need to be next. Um, our product is a premium product. It's not cheap, right? Uh, I mean, it's not super expensive either. The Mod Mic Four is starts at forty two dollars US. And the mod mic five is seventy, uh, and there's a middle product at fifty. But you know, in a developing nation, that's a lot to pay for a microphone, right? People don't have mm -hmm. super fancy headsets in uh, in Sudan, so <laughs> just picking a place randomly. <laughs> no, I, th I think you're right. Now, do you do you can you or are you allowed to just change up pricing depending on who's buying from where? I'm sure we can. I don't think it violates any law. Um, but I don't think it's a good idea to have variable pricing because you begin to lose control over the pricing of your product. And the more control you can maintain, especially when dealing with international uh, sellers, the more control you can maintain over price stability, the less often you're going to have people racing to the bottom on price for your product. And you really want to avoid that because it really messes with your whole distribution network. So if somebody in the UK, for instance, drops their price $10 unexpectedly, for, then every other distributor in the EU gets mad. 
Got it. I think it makes it a lot easier to, to manage than in that in a sense too. So speaking of that, how is it managed? Like, are you using, uh, are you, do you have a team working on this, a person working on this? Do you have applications that you recommend for anyone that needs to help with like this kind of distribution? Uh, we've got an internal guy here that handles it. His name is John. Does a great job. It's basically, his job is managing our partners. That is his, one of, one of his, uh, and probably the largest primary role he has. So, uh, yeah, John manages all the partners and, uh, actually I am the one, interestingly, I am the one who goes out and finds new partners. I vet them. I establish contact and we begin that discussion. And then I hand it over to John who begin, becomes their sort of their brand partner. Got it. So you mentioned that there's also this new live group chat platform that you've been able to implement onto, is it the site or, or where, where, where the, the customers are able to, to ask questions and also be able to communicate with them. Can you tell us more about this? What is this platform that you guys have been using? Yeah, we use, we use Discord, which is huge in the gaming community, not so huge outside the gaming community. So it really only applies to, to gaming um, companies. But I think for now, yeah, I'm sure you could use it for other things, but, mm -hmm. uh, it is, it is straight up just like a live chat that is, it's so not like the live chat you get on a website where it's sort of like a one-on-one -on -one experience. Like this is a community building tool more than it is a, a support tool. Maybe most of the audience is like most familiar with like Slack. So this is like Slack for, for the gaming community. Is that a fair? Yeah. Yeah. You can think of it. Imagine if, you could just give a link to anybody and they could just join your Slack channel, like a, a specific Slack channel. Obviously not okay. the one about like, <laughs> you know, private stuff. Right. Um, just like a community Slack channel, yeah. Got it. So how, how large is this? I think this is cool because I don't think anyone that I've had on the show has talked about using Discord or, or live like group chats like Slack or any other kind of platform like that to build a community. How, how large has it gotten? Is it unwieldy at a certain point? Uh, we haven't hit the unwieldy point. Uh, we've probably got about a thousand people in the chat, but at any given time, there's probably only a handful, four or five people talking. Uh, so it's not like just a flood of messages. It sort of self-regulates, I think, a, a, a chat like that, because at the point a lot of people are chatting, people don't want to be involved with that. Like, you, If it's moving too fast for you to read, then you're not going to say anything. So, And usually, it usually doesn't get too crazy in there. Got it. What are people talking about in there? Uh, there? I can't imagine they're coming in just talking about the microphone only, right? Or like, what are they? We have coming in? three channels that are really busy. Um, we have our general chat, which is, as it, you can imagine, just about anything you can imagine. Uh, they're just people chatting. A lot of people just talking about their day or you know whatever. Um, so that's the general chat. We have tech talk, which is uh, people talking about specific tech things that are not related to our product. Uh, we are a tech brand, and so people come in, they ask about, I don't know, Raspberry Pi devices or something, and goes in there. Um, and, you know, it's interesting because our fans are, are all tech people, basically. So we don't answer questions in there, really, but unless we know the answer, which is not often. But usually somebody will ask a question, and somebody else in the chat will know the answer. So it's it's fun to see that happening. And then we have a support channel, which is, as you can imagine... Uh, people who are having questions about our products. So whether that is pre-purchase questions or uh, actual support, something is wrong with my product questions. Yeah, I can imagine this is like a hotbed for like live and tons of really valuable customer feedback, right, on 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 how to talk to your customer, what kind of concerns they have, like product research for your next iteration. Yeah, it's it's been super valuable in learning about our customers and converting unhappy people into happy people. Uh, and uh, to come back to that earlier topic of I'd rather have one really solid conversation with one individual person than a passive ad, um, it really is valuable for that, right? So people come in and they're mad because their, their mic isn't working the way they think it is. And by the time they leave, they love our company. Got it. Now, other than Discord, what other apps or tools do you guys use or rely on to run the business? Well, other than Discord and Shopify? Yeah, I guess do you use any <laughs> Shopify apps? We use a user voice as our, as our actual t uh, customer service management platform. Um, we use uh, Rakuten as our warehouse provider. 
um, within Shopify itself, we have a, a bunch of apps we use. What are some of your favorites? Uh, Bold makes a bunch of really good stuff, if you're familiar with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, specifically, product upsell uh, and product discount have been very valuable tools. Uh, there is a, the ModMic 5 works best when it's paired with a USB device that we also make um, when you're using it on PC. So being able to provide that, they, they buy the ModMic from our site, and then we say, hey, don't forget to add this item. Mm-hmm. Uh, adding that plug-in shifted our, our attachment rate of those USBs from about 10% to nearly 50%. Wow. Pays for itself. So, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, that's been a super worthwhile tool. Um, we also use a follow-up email program called Follow-Up Email. Uh, that's been very handy. Um, we, again, because the mod mic is a, is a bit of an odd item, uh, we use it to sort of give them a quick tutorial on how to best use their product, as well as offer up a customer survey, not about like, hey, review our product, although it has links to that too, but about what they wanted from our product and what they want from future products. So very valuable tool in learning about our customers. We spend a lot of time trying to learn what our customers use our product for because it is a really flexible product. Got it. So what's, what's next? Like what do you guys have planned for, for the, in 2019? Like what are some big goals you guys have? So yeah, we've got a wireless product coming up. Um, as far as beyond that, I can't really say, but <laughs> as far as growing the company goes, we are probably going to continue to expand into new markets. I think that's we'll, we'll see a couple new markets open up in 2019. Uh, my priority being Russia, if I could, if I could find a way into into Russia. Uh, but that's the uh, it's an interesting challenge in and of itself. But there's a few other key places. Korea is another big one. Uh, so we're going to see that. Uh, we're going to be attending fewer events, actually. We've decided that attending events has not produced a really positive ROI for us. Um, that does give us that really great one-on-one interaction, but the price is simply too high. Uh, we can get better better use out of those dollars. So we're going to be reinvesting into uh, more digital, stronger touch points there. Um, yeah, I think that's, a, that's what we got planned for 2019. Yeah, new products and refocusing into digital interaction with people over physical interaction. Yeah, definitely plenty on your place. So thank you so much, Joe. Antlineaudio.com is a website. Again, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your, your story and experience. Oh, it's been really fun, Felix. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Shopify Masters, the e-commerce podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs powered by Shopify. To get your exclusive 30-day extended trial, visit shopify.com slash masters.